0: Well, we're continuing in our In the Wilderness series in Numbers 32, so you can begin looking looking that up if you'd like. <clears throat> Trust is hard to come by, isn't it? Have you ever had someone make a promise to you and not keep it? Have you ever had somebody pretend to be one thing but turn out to really be somebody entirely different? I think most of us have gone through those kinds of betrayals. We're, we're familiar with that. In this world where words are cheap, and they come easy, and promises are quickly and easily broken, the face we put on might be entirely different than the heart inside. We're used to it. Trust is hard to come, come by. Even more importantly... How can you and I keep from being that person who makes a promise and doesn't keep it? Who pretends to be one thing when we're actually something else? Today's text in Numbers 32 uh, seems to be a bit tricky. The last couple of weeks have been uh, subjects that might be hard to preach because people don't like to hear it. Uh, I can deal with that. That yeah, you know, I don't. You you can get mad at me. I'm, I'm I'm good at that. I got friends to yell at me all the time. That's good. I don't know what to do when I don't know what to do. So as we're working through this, one of the things that ma- makes it tricky, really the thing that makes it tricky, uh, is why is it even here? What what's this passage about? Good scholars and, and faithful Bible teachers disagree about why it's here. Why did God include this passage in this place? What's Moses trying to say as he records this for Israel? And What's the message of it? What's the point of this passage? How should we view it as New Testament Christians? And there's a lot of uh, different takes on it. Some I really, really like. I just don't think they're right. As we're looking at this, we have to remember that God didn't give us the Bible to confuse us, to hide from us. He gives us this, his revealed word, to reveal himself to us, to help us to understand him and ourselves and how those two things fit together. So whenever we're reading scripture, a good rule to keep in mind, and and you've heard me quote our, our brother Alistair Begg many times on this, the main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things. So when we get down in the weeds with the things that we don't really understand, that's okay that there are things we don't understand. God is speaking through the main things and the plain things. We want to be able to see what he's saying here. So Let's, uh, let's read the first 24 verses of chapter uh, 32 here, and then we can wrestle with it together. <clears throat> Good thing I kept it marked because I'm still in James. Here we go. I'll be reading from the uh, 1984 edition of the New International Version. If you've been with us, you know that's Heaven's preferred translation. Uh <clears throat> I'm not saying it's better than the others. I'm just saying they're not as good. Anyhow, uh, (laughs) so if you have a different translation, it's the same text. It means the same thing. Any Bible translation you grab, you're going to find the same meaning worded differently. Some are stronger than others. Here we go. The Reubenites and the Gadites, who had very large herds and flocks, Saw that the land, uh, the lands of Jazer and Gilead, were suitable for livestock. So they came to Moses and Eleazar the priest, and to the leaders of the community, and said, Ataroth, Dibon, Jazer, Nimrah, Heshbon, uh, Elia, <coughs> excuse me, I'm struggling here. Elielah, I practiced that and still struggle. Sebam, Nebo, and Bayan. The land the Lord subdued before the people of Israel are suitable for livestock. And your servants have livestock. If we found favor in your eyes, they said, let this land be given to your servants as our possession. Do not make us cross the Jordan. Moses said to the Gadites and Reubenites, Shall your countrymen go to war while you sit here? Why do you discourage the Israelites from going over into the land the Lord has given them? This is what your fathers did when I sent them from Kadesh Barnea to look over the land. After they went up to the valley of Eshkol and viewed the land, they discouraged the Israelites from entering the land the Lord had given them. The Lord's anger was aroused that day, and He swore this oath. Because they have not followed Me wholeheartedly, not one of the men, 20 years old or more, who came up out of Egypt will see the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not one except Caleb, son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, and Joshua, son of Nun. For they followed the Lord wholeheartedly. The Lord's anger burned against Israel. And he made them wander the desert 40 years until the whole generation of those who had done evil in his sight was gone and here you are a brood of a brood of sinners standing in the place of your fathers and making the Lord even more angry with Israel If you turn away from following him he will again leave all this people in the desert and you will be the cause of their destruction Then they came up to him and said, We would like to build pens here for our livestock and cities for our women and children. But we are ready to arm ourselves and go ahead of the Israelites until we have brought them to their place. Meanwhile, our women and children will live in fortified cities for protection from the inhabitants of the land. We will not return to our homes until every Israelite has received his inheritance. We will not receive any inheritance with them on the other side of the Jordan because our inheritance has come to us on the east side of the Jordan. Then Moses said to them, If you will do this, if you will arm yourselves before the Lord for battle, and if all of you will go go armed over the Jordan before the Lord until He has driven His enemies out before Him, then... When the land is subdued before the Lord, you may return and be free from your obligation to the Lord and to Israel. And this land will be your possession before the Lord. But if you fail to do this, you will be sinning against the Lord. And you may be sure that your sin will find you out. Build cities for your women and children and pens for your flocks. But do what you have promised this is the word of the lord receive it as such in faith father as we endeavor to study your word today we know that this this is a book that is bigger than us we have a tendency in our human arrogance to want to sit in judgment of your book failing to recognize that your book sits in judgment of us Give us eyes to see, ears to hear. Give us the the reasoning, rational capacity to be able to see in the the logic of language and the plain reading of this text what you have for us. But Father, beyond our our intellect, we ask that you would give us the spiritual insight, the receptive heart to respond to your Holy Spirit to see how you are speaking to us. That we might apply your word effectively and faithfully in this world. Change us, Lord. Make us more like Jesus today. We pray this in his name. Amen. So as we are looking at this text, the struggle that that we run into a lot of times is with commentaries, is when you see a commentary telling you what a Bible passage means, it's really hard to keep in mind that the person writing this is a human being, and that commentary is not inspired. Just like when you hear a, a sermon from this or any other pulpit, it's not inspired, it's not infallible, it's not inerrant. There are inevitable errors. In fact, just the other day I said that Christianity started in, in Africa, didn't I? Uh, and, and I meant to say something else and the words came out wrong. It was very early in Africa and Christendom, as we might call it, did begin uh, in Ethiopia. But we know that people make mistakes. If you've had a conversation with me for more than five minutes, you know I stumble over myself a lot of the time. These are good friends that will tell you the truth to your face in front of a whole bunch of people and on the internet. That's just real. We don't put our faith in a a human being. We put our faith in God and His Word. And when we find commentaries that tell us what a text says... And it requires a Bible degree and a fancy education to be able to sift through it. My recommendation is to be very, very careful. If you can't see from a plain reading of the text what the main point is, there may be other things. There may be background information. There may be a lot of things. But if you can't see from a plain reading of the text where the author is going, then Coming up with fancy applications of it ends up being human speculation most of the time, and it may be useful, it may be practical, but it may not be right. As I was getting ready for this, I, I looked at a number of different commentaries more than I normally would, but I had to make sure. And this is just a little meta communication, letting you in inside the head in the, in the scary place, uh, you know. Whenever I'm preparing a sermon, and and many of you already know this, it's important for me, and and I would challenge you to hold any teacher or preacher you have to this standard. It's important for me to do the work myself before I consult somebody else. Does that make sense? Right? It's cheating. It's lazy otherwise. There's a reason that God has given us individual brains, and there's a reason that God has given us his word and put it in our hands. So, I have to actually do the work for myself, not just tell you what I read somebody else saying. Then when I go to the commentaries, it's to confirm or to refute what what I'm seeing in the text. Am I missing it? Am I getting it wrong? If I'm the only person that's ever seen this before, there's a problem because wisdom does not reside with me alone. That's a good place for an amen. The reality of it is when I went through these commentaries, I, in, in if I picked four commentaries, I found at least three different opinions on it. And that concerned me. Lord, how am I going to get this right? How am I going to faithfully speak to your people about something that people much smarter than me and much more educated than me can't seem to agree on? And after wrestling and wrestling for t- several days, too many days, it occurred to me, hey, knucklehead, why aren't you praying about this? You need to be praying more. Wrestling is important. It's good for us to wrestle with the text. God gave you a brain on purpose. God gave us individual brain containers so we don't all just plug into one big mainframe and and all think the same thoughts the same way. God wants diversity of thought or He wouldn't have given it to us. But what He really wants, what He demands, and has from Genesis all the way until Christ returns is our dependence on Him. Here's what, what I think we really need to understand before we go into the text. Regardless of how something might seem, I need to know what is true, not what I want to be true. I can't read into the text what my background, my framework, my own human understanding tells me it should say. This is what God should be saying here. Does that sound right? Of course not. I don't get to tell God. I need to draw it out from the text. That's what we call exegesis, to, to, to draw it out, to pull it out from the text. What is it actually saying? And where the, where the Scripture is clear, we need to be clear and dogmatic. When God says, thou shalt, thou shalt. When God says, thou shalt not, tell me. This is real. So we don't have... There are a lot of areas that are black and white, and there's no wiggle room, and we don't get to say, well, you know, it's kind of guidelines, and we're going to, it's a modern time, and it's an old book, and so we need to sort of adjust our thinking. That doesn't fly. But there are areas where our understanding is limited, and it might be gray. And so, when that is the case, we need to not be dogmatic where the Scripture is not dogmatic. It doesn't make any sense, is an old adage in, in preaching, weak point pound pulpit, right? So if the if I can be really loud and passionate, then I can convince you of my point without being able to make the argument. When we look at this text, I hope and I think you'll be able to follow the conclusions that, that I'm drawing from this. Because they can't be my conclusions. They have to be what the word says. One, one uh, excellent pastor, one of my favorite commentators, saw this as a type, this whole story as a type of Christ in the church and, and crossing the Jordan, many believe this. This is intended to be a type for us of dying to self and receiving Christ and going into the promised land. And therefore, Reuben and Gad, by not doing that, are settling for the world and not coming into the full promise of God. That could be, re- could be right. could be true. feels like a stretch. feels like something we're putting into there because we want it to be there. And it might be. And I think there's good application from that. But I can't pound the pulpit for something I think might be that I want to see there because that'll preach. As we look at this, a plain reading of the text that a regular person with a normal brain can, can see should jump out at us. Here's what I think is the core reality that holds it all together. And when we get done, see if you don't think the same thing. There may be more. There may be other things. I don't think there's less. The core reality for today is that only God knows the heart but character is recognized by actions. Only God knows the heart. Character is recognized by actions. Now, before we get into the, the body of this, I want to kind of walk you through why I think that so that we, we grasp it. As we look at, at the story, we've been building over the last several chapters the, the new generation has come. The old generation fell in the, in the desert under God's curse. The new generation has come and God is preparing to bring them into the promised land. This is what everything has been working toward. We finally get there. We have the big uh, the big uh, sin episode of immorality and idolatry as uh, Balaam uh, advises Moab and, and the Midianites to then seduce Israel into sexual immorality and idolatry. Then we see the, the, the transition from Moses to Joshua. That Moses is still in charge, but God's prepared his heart that you don't get to go in. I told you what the standard was, and you're still mine. I still love you. I still approve of you. And you will die with honor, but you will die before you go into the promised land, before you finish this mission. And he prepares the way in getting Joshua ready. And then we see the the daughters of Zelophehad come with their problem because their father had no sons and so the inheritance that would ordinarily go through the sons uh would would allow their father's name to disappear from the record and they would not he would not have an inheritance in the land of Israel and so they approach Moses and the leaders and and uh, the Lord says yeah they're right give them the inheritance and so this God uses uh, case law if you will and and it's a pattern that he does throughout this scripture to then develop and clarify the law that he's already given and and then we see a, a thing about vows and it seems almost out of place and when you make a vow to the lord you keep your vow right that almost what seems like a throwaway isn't and the focus of that section is is on the responsibility that God gives to those to whom He gives authority. The purpose of authority is not your own exaltation, but the responsibility of those that God has put under your care. And he couches that in the context of making promises to God and keeping or not keeping them. Then we have the story of God's vengeance, the Lord's wrath against the Midianites, those who, who seduced the children of Israel away from God. Right? So, this is, you can see how these concepts are building. There's the keeping of vows, the, the responsibility in relationships. There is the, uh, the, God's wrath against the Midianites. We've had a few chapters since chapter 25. Maybe they thought they got away with it, but nobody gets away with anything because God sees it all. And God has the children of Israel under Moses' direction, kind of tying up the loose ends for Moses here before he passes from the planet and is gathered to his fathers. And God wipes out the Midianites. And and we went through all of that. And in the the process of that, the conquest that results brings the, the Israelites plunder. They now have gained a lot of livestock. They've gained a lot of wealth, and they've gained some people, not a lot of people apparently, but they've, they've gained some people from this. Okay, so all of that happens leading up to this particular section. With those principles in mind, Moses then records this story of the, what, what you're heading in your Bible might call the Transjordan tribes, those who are settling on the other side across the Jordan. And it turns out, as we look at it, that Israel was settled on both sides of the Jordan with Reuben and Gad and what uh, turns out to be a half of the tribe of Manasseh on the east side, where they're coming from. And then on the west side, on the Mediterranean side, if you will, it's not quite there, but to that, you, you have the rest of the, the nine and a half tribes This will be significant in their history later on as unbelieving pagan forces come against Gad and Reuben and they become influenced by those other peoples. That's going to be a problem for all of Israel, but Reuben and Gad are going to have a particular issue with that. That speaks, in a sense, to the wisdom of it, but that that comes later on. But when you look, if you were to look at a map, and I probably should have had Brad put one up there for you, but if, if if you were to look at a map of how this looks, the other tribes, significant portions of land, but Reuben and Gad and Manasseh on the east side of the Jordan have wide swaths of land. And this land, as we see in the text, is particularly suited to livestock. You might have noticed in those first few verses, the word livestock is mentioned four times, right? And we know that when... When a word is repeated or a phrase is repeated, we see this pattern. There's an emphasis to it. It becomes kind of important. So they say they, they, they've got a lot of livestock, and they come to a place that's good for livestock, and they say, Moses, hey, this place is good for livestock. And guess what? We've got livestock. Might be important for us to recognize the livestock thing. This space allows for their livestock to spread out, the cattle, the sheep, the, uh, the donkeys, whatever it is that they, that they have here. And as that happens, it makes more space for the others. It leaves them unencumbered for the battle that's to come. And and all the scholars that I you know consider, they all they all consider these things in their opinions about it. It's good to know. I don't think it's the point. And and ultimately, we need to recognize that at least one key reason that this is here is simply the historical record of saying this is how these tribes. Settled in these places. And we'll see as we go forward the the boundaries of the others, right? Particularly when we get to Deuteronomy and Joshua, they lay these things out. Now, here in this story, our memory verse for today comes in verse 23. And there's something about this moment. That's kind of the climax of Moses' response to the to the Reubenites and Gadites, and and Moses' response to them in this climax seems to be the climax of the passage. It seems to be the, the the turning point of the whole thing. Just as you read it, you can you can kind of get that emotional feel that Moses is worked up. He he agrees to it, but he gives him a stern warning as he does it. And it all seems to hinge on do what you said you will do, right? And if you don't do what you said you'd do, you're not going to have to worry about answering to me. You're going to answer to God. All right, so with that in mind, it seems evident, it seems apparent that the point of this passage is Moses is telling the Israelites who are about to go into this new land, they're going to spend many years now in conquest of the land. We'll see that through the whole book of Joshua. And when Joshua dies, there are still some tribes or some uh, nations that they haven't fully dealt with. And because they don't fully get them dealt with, they become just a, like a, a horsefly on the back of your neck. I just keep keep getting them, keep bothering them, keep pestering them for, for generations to come. And it becomes a problem throughout their history. But as they come into the land, they need to know what it means to be people of God. And God has already said, keeping your word, keeping your vows, matters because it's a reflection of God's integrity. Now we get a narrative, a story, where this actually is a a rubber meets the road moment. Reuben Gad... Will you do what you promised to do? Or are you just flapping your gums? We read earlier in the service from the book of James. James is not contradicting or conflicting anything that Paul said about being justified by grace or by faith alone, being saved by grace alone, appropriating that through faith alone because Paul himself says over and over again that we are saved unto works. We are in Christ. It changes our identity. Therefore, we walk worthy of that calling. We are united to Christ. We've changed. We're dead to sin and alive to God. Now, if that's true in you, it's going to show up in how you live. The fruit of the flesh, the the acts of the, the fallen flesh nature, the sinful nature, are obvious. Immorality, debauchery, all of the things that come out of that. Paul doesn't give us exhaustive lists of sins because we keep coming up with new ways to sin. But then he gives us the fruit of the Spirit. The natural way contrasted with the fruit of the Spirit. If I'm in Christ, then something in me, the Holy Spirit himself, produces a new kind of life that I couldn't live on my own because my sin nature dominated. But now that Christ has slain that sin nature at the cross and by faith I'm united to Him in His death on the cross, now the Holy Spirit in me produces fruit in keeping with repentance. What's in comes out. Moses is telling this to the people, recording this for the people so that, yes, they will know why Reuben and Gad are here and half of Manasseh, and there will be a record of that, record keeping, for people that so many archaeologists like to say were non-literate people, they sure keep a lot of records, keep a lot of written books, I, you know, I don't know. must be really smart to keep books without being able to read but anyway as we look at this moses assumes moses assumes their motives doesn't he they come and they say moses hey uh, you know we got all these livestock you know all this livestock and and have got a place that's good for livestock can we keep our livestock in the livestock place can we, can we stay here cuz you know we God gave us this land. We already had this conquest. We already took this land. God wants somebody to be here. It's part of Israel. He's given it to us. Can this be our particular part of the inheritance? We don't see anywhere in here where God condemns this choice. This is why I I take issue with some of the dogmatic takes about what this means. This is a sinful thing on the part of Reuben and Gad, and, and maybe... But the emphasis in the text seems to be that the sin would be evidenced by the action. If your heart is sinful, you will show it by not doing what you said, by not coming and fighting on behalf of your brothers. Fighting, as Moses says, before the Lord. Not just before your brothers. They say, we'll we'll go out ahead of the Israelites. He's like, yeah, that's good, but... Keep in mind, you're doing this for God. This is God's cause more than it's their cause. So when you're fighting, you're fighting before the face of God. And if you don't, it will reveal your wicked heart, just like the spies. But if you do, conversely... That's an indication that your heart was true in what you're saying. So I don't think it's legitimate. I don't think it's valid to say that God's putting this here so that we would see Reuben and Gad making a sinful choice and we would learn then not to settle on this side of the Jordan. I you know, I, I hear the, the case that, you know, well, Christians need to, we need to storm all the way into the promised land. And this is an illustration that helps us to see that we can be saved and and settle for less than Christ and not die to ourselves. Well, that might be a worthwhile application. That doesn't appear to be the point of the text. Or God would have said it. God would have pointed out the wickedness of this. And there may be, well, well, I'll get to that later. There, there may be some, some things that we need to see, but we want to know what He says. So without any further ado, let's, let's cut to the chase here. Only God knows the heart, but character is recognized by actions. Notice this first point we want to see, first principle and how it shows up. Appearances often lead to faulty conclusions. Appearances often lead to faulty conclusions. In 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. Samuel's going to, to anoint the, the future king of Israel. And he goes to a man named Jesse, and he has all his sons come out, and he goes through them all. Nope, that's not the one. That's not the one. The Lord is directing the prophet to, to pick the one. And, and he's, he says, Lord, surely this guy, he, I mean, he looks the part. He, he's got all the the... Boxes checked, his resume's great. And God says, No, that's not it. And the whole point of the verse is man looks on the outer appearance, God judges the heart. Appearances often lead to faulty conclusions. Jesus was confronted by the Pharisees in the Gospels, and, and uh, we see this in, uh, I think it's Matthew 7. I, I should have written it down here. I think it's Matthew 7. Where they're confronting him about um working on the Sabbath as his uh, disciples are picking heads of grain and and he's going to heal somebody and they're trying to trap him and they're they're angry with him and Jesus concludes by saying, "Stop judging by mere appearances and judge rightly." now we usually think of Jesus saying, Don't judge well." He does say that in a particular context. He doesn't say never judge. Judge rightly. Why should we not judge? Because we don't judge rightly. Don't judge somebody's motives. How do you know? You're not in their heart. But you should. When I take a bite out of an apple, I want to look at the apple first. I know this from personal experience recently. And if there's a big old oozing gross spot on there, I ain't eating that sucker. Are you kidding me? I have to judge that apple, right? Right? You reach into the bag and you go to pick an apple and it's just gushing in your hand? No, not doing it. That's why I don't go in the produce drawer ever, by the way. You can write that down. So anyway, Jesus says judge rightly. How do you judge rightly? First, by taking a step back. In our text, Moses is judging them based on his experience in the past and what it looks like to him on the surface. They ask for this uh, you know, for this inheritance, and please don't make us cross the Jordan. Now what they're saying is don't make us cross the Jordan for our inheritance because we have it here, but Moses hears that and he's like, here we go again. Didn't we just do this with the last generation? We get to the edge of the promised land. I've been waiting all this time. We're back at the edge of the promised land. And now you're going to discourage your brothers by saying, no, we're not going. Your wicked fathers did that, you brood of sinners, and you're just like them. And then in what feels like meekness in the text, maybe I'm, Maybe I'm hearing it in my mind differently than what they're saying it, but it feels to me like Meekness, they're like, um, "Hey, Moses, we just, we just want to have our livestock here. We just want to build some pens, keep our family here. We'll still go. We're ready to go and fight. We're not saying don't go in. We're not saying we're afraid of, of the giants. We believe God's word, and we believe that God has already given us the land. Therefore, we are just acting on that belief. Let us go fight." And we won't come home until everybody's settled. Well, that sounds a little different than there's giants, let's go back to Egypt. But Moses, based on his own experience, his framework, and what he thinks they mean, how he's seeing in his own mind what their motives should be, he's making a judgment that only God can make. He's trying to determine the sinfulness of their heart. But God doesn't give you a lens into their heart. Only in the actions that you see. Appearances often lead to faulty conclusions. Moses is zealous for God's glory and honor, and he wants to see this finished. He already knows he can't go into the promised land. But he's not willing to go through this backwards movement again and in his zeal for god he makes what seems to be a mistake and god doesn't condemn moses for it he just lets it play out and he doesn't condemn reuben and gad Which, by the way, is why we have to be really careful about drawing any really hard conclusions about the nature of their actions, because it doesn't tell us one way or another. God leaves us to draw the conclusions here. And so we make our best assessment. Appearances, though, often lead to faulty conclusions, and that applies to our interpretation of texts as well. Second point we need to see, honest conversation can turn barriers into bridges honest conversation can turn barriers into bridges notice notice how this turns for him moses is hot right can, can can you tell as he's as he's speaking he's not saying okay guys you know let me reason with you no this is a stern rebuke he's like shaking his fist you can you can just see the veins popping out on his forehead as he's saying this you can probably see the neck but he's got the beard thing anyway um, as Moses talks to them, his anger is aroused. And if he were right, that anger would make sense, but he's not right because he doesn't know what's going on. And they just talk to him. And notice, notice the quality of character in Moses. He listens. In, in the book of James, right before the passage we read today, We started with one twenty-two. If you back up to James 1.19 and 20 and 21, James says, my dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. Because man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God requires. So Moses here, having gotten angry, now, let's them talk. And he listens. I don't think he's convinced yet. He doesn't sound convinced to me. He's like, okay. But, you know, Moses, I think he's, he's an Israelite, but I think he's actually from Missouri because, you know, he's a show-me kind of guy, right? Moses says, okay. Prove it. Show me. But they're able to get past the whole conflict by honest conversation when the one in authority, don't miss that, Moses is in charge. He's the one that God has put in charge. He can say yes or no right now. But his job is to say yes or no as God's man. To speak for God. And you can't do that with an arrogant heart. You can't do that when you're so full of your own pride that you won't listen to the other side. So Moses listens. And they have an honest conversation about what Gad and Reuben intend to do. And Moses then says, Okay, I think this can make sense. Notice our next point truth is in the doing truth is in the doing moses may not be fully convinced but he agrees some commentators said after they have some deliberation and and they go back and they come up with a, an agreement I, I don't see that in the text you know maybe but i don't want to jump out on something that's not there I don't know that these guys went back and they didn't originally plan this, but they changed their mind because they wanted to convince Moses. I I think we're reaching. What we know for sure is they come and they say, here's what we want to do, and we're willing to go and carry out the mission and then get our inheritance, which, don't miss the implication of that. That means they'll be the last to get, they're getting it first, but they actually get it last, right? So they've gotten the package, but they can't unwrap it until everybody else unwraps theirs. Try that with your five year old at Christmas time. <laughs> so, in this agreement, Moses says, If you're going to do it, don't talk about it, be about it. Right? Take a look at the text. <clears throat> he, after railing on them, they come up to him, verse 16, and say, we, we, We'd like to build pens here for our livestock and, and cities for our women and children. Because if they're going to go in and fight, the women and children have to have protection, right? So we want to get that all set up. But we're ready to arm ourselves and go ahead of the Israelites. That was their, their, their places before the Ark of the Covenant back in chapter 10. We're ready to be out front. We're, we, we're ready to run point on this. We'll go out in front of the Israelites. Meanwhile, our women and children will live in fortified cities for protection from the inhabitants of the land. Verse 18... We will not return to our homes until every Israelite has received his inheritance. We will not receive any inheritance with them on the other side of the Jordan because our inheritance has come to us on the, on the east side of the Jordan. That's, that's inspirational right there this is the the william wallace speech i'm i'm going to i'm going to be the one out front this is it, it's funny it's always mel gibson in my mind uh this is benjamin martin grabbing the flag and and charging forward after the uh after the flag bearer falls wow inspirational words but moses says in verse 20 yeah words are cheap then moses said to them if You will do this. If, there's a couple of ifs that he throws in here, right? If you will arm yourselves before the Lord, not just your brothers, but before the Lord for battle. And if all of you will go armed over the Jordan before the Lord until He has driven His enemies out before Him, then, there's a lot of big conditions here, then when the Lord... When the land is subdued before the Lord, you may return and be free from your obligation to the Lord and to Israel, and this land will be your possession before the Lord. What Moses is saying here is, guys, the proof is in the pudding. You can talk about it all day, but you don't get nothing until the deal is done. That's a pretty significant thing. And notice how he closes off the warning here uh, in verse 23. But if you fail to do this, not, not fail in the battle. Understand the nature of faith here. Nobody in Israel, from what we're reading here, in this new generation, from, especially you look at the daughters of faith, the daughters of Zalopahad, they are acting as if they already own the land, right? They haven't crossed the Jordan yet. They still gotta fight armies. And they're saying, okay, let's, let's sort this out. Because they believe God is going to do what God said. Because when God says it, he always does it. This is why it's important to keep your vows. If you represent God, you need to look like God. If you say something, let it mean something. This is why Jesus and James can say, why do you need to swear at all? Why do you need to make the big promise? Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. Be the person that can always be counted on all the time. And when you can be the person that can always be counted on all the time so that when you say it, it's as good as done, then you will look like God. God is a promise keeper. And Moses is saying, if you don't, be sure your sin will find you out. Now, that... That doesn't mean we're all going to know about it because it's obviously going to be obvious if they obviously stay at home. But it's obvious. Notice the repetition for emphasis. Anyway, so the point being that the sin itself, and and for a reference to this, you can look at what the Lord says uh, to Cain in Genesis chapter 4, that sin is crouching at your door and it desires to have you. The picture here is when, it says, when, when Moses says your sins will find you out is that, that personification of sin as if it's pursuing you, hunting you, chasing you down, and you will reap the whirlwind. You've sowed to the wind. You will reap the whirlwind. It is a, a very uh, prevalent theme throughout the prophets. Notice this. Sin. Sin is never hidden from God. Sin is never hidden from God. Moses is saying, look, you you might fool us. You might make a promise and then not keep it. You might even keep it, but not have your heart in it. But God knows your heart. God knows your thoughts before you think them. God knows your motives before you're aware of them be sure your sin will find you out. Now he says that here as a harsh warning. I I will tell you, there are many facets to knowing that God will always be aware of our sin and your sin will find you out. That was, by the way, one of the most oft-quoted scriptures of my childhood as my mother continually said. You will get caught. God will make sure that you get caught. If you go to that party and I don't know about it, God knows about it. (laughs) And I believed it. You know why I believed it? Because it was true. And God gave me a little brother and a little sister to make sure that it was true. Because sometimes you try to take that hidden route and you think you got away with stuff, but you get caught. This is more than that. Saying that even if you don't get caught, you're already caught. We all stand before God. We will stand before God in the judgment at the end, but we all stand before God every day at all times. No sin, no secret sin, no thought pattern, no arrogance, no no selfish motive, no, no gossip disguised as a prayer request is ever hidden from God. He knows it all. And it will always catch up with you. For the wicked, that means death and condemnation for those who don't belong to God. But there is a comfort in this as well. For those who belong to God, the fact that our sin is never hidden from Him and He makes sure that it comes out and gets dealt with is the comfort of a parent's discipline. Children know that they are loved when their parents discipline them consistently and with integrity. And yes, sometimes it has to be harsh. But there's a big difference between discipline and abuse. Abuse comes from an irrational heart in the parent. Discipline comes from wanting to set the child on the right path and keep them there. God has wrath for those outside his family. The sinner who is rejecting God's rule, and they receive God's wrath. But God has abundant compassion and love for His children. And yes, He will bring pain and suffering into your life to discipline you, to shape you, to make you more like Him. Right now, some of you in this room inevitably are going through something in your life that you wish you were not. Amen? It's horrible, it's miserable, and you wish it could be any other way. However, Romans 8 points out to us that if God sent His Son to die for you while you were His enemy, do you really think now that you've received Him and become His child that He's going to give you less than the best possible thing? So whatever the horrible thing is that you're going through is part of His infinitely wise, sovereign plan to shape you into the likeness of Christ. If you are not His, you have not put your faith in Him, then it's designed to break you, to bring you to the cross, to make a decision about whether you will receive His rule or reject His rule. Because by default, you reject it. And so all of the hard things in our lives when we are apart from God, separated by sin, are to break us, to bring us to the cross so that we will become His. And once we are His, they are designed to break the shell, to break us down, to build us up, to make us more like Jesus. And so in the end, that worst thing I can think about has already been sifted through God's perfect will and is, by its very existence in my life, the very best possible thing for God's kingdom plan, no matter how hard that is for me to swallow. Sin is never hidden from God. But in Christ, those who belong to God, He's disciplining not destroying. There's another principle that we see here in the text, in how Moses presents it. So we read through through verse 24. You can read the rest on your own. And we see uh, as he gives this to, uh, gives this deal to them, if you will. Uh, he presents it to um, Joshua and the and the leaders. Of the tribes, and and he tells them. Th- this is in verse thirty-eight. He gives orders about Reuben and Gad uh, to Eleazar the priest and Joshua son of Nun, who will these will be the leaders when they go in, and to the family heads of the Israelite tribes. And he says to them. If the Gadites and Reubenites, every man armed for battle, cross over the Jordan with you before the Lord, then when the land is subdued before you, give them the land of Gilead as their possession. But if they do not cross over with you armed, they must accept their possession with you in Canaan. Again, it's a picture of the discipline. They don't no longer belong to Israel. They don't get destroyed. They just have to do what seemed to be the plan in the first place. But don't miss what he tells them. They don't get the land now; they get the land after. Mark this down. So it's this biblical principle: trust, but verify. Trust, but verify. When I was in the Air Force, uh, it's a very prominent uh, Ronald Reagan quote. I was working at NSA. we were you know dealing with all the top secret clearance, all that kind of stuff. And on every wall, I think, was a quote of Ronald Reagan, in God we trust, all others we monitor. This is an important principle. Jesus called us to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. What does that mean? That's just weird. What what does that mean? What it means is you need to be innocent of sin, but not naive of how how the world works. You need to understand that you're going to be in a world of darkness. He's talking to his uh, his disciples in the context of persecution in the world. And the way that spins out for us is you need to understand that the world doesn't work the way it's intended to work, right? We don't live in Eden. There are dragons. And we need to recognize that there are dragons and we need to be able to operate in a world that does not operate according to the rules. That doesn't mean we play by their rules. It means we're aware of it. We trust, but we verify. When someone makes a promise, I can take them at their word, but don't spend the, don't spend the money until you cash the check. You know what I'm saying? This is the, the principle behind this. And Moses is saying, they've said it, We're going to take them at their word. However, they don't get to cash in on this inheritance until after they get here and do the thing. Trust, but verify. My hope is that as we walk through this, you can see these principles clearly developing. Again, there may be other things. Uh, I would be hard-pressed to be dogmatic about other things that don't seem plain these seem pretty obvious and i think we can draw these principles out from that only god knows the heart but character is recognized by actions when you have a, a seed and you plant it and it starts to grow and it's just a green little thing unless you're a real expert at it you may not know what that thing is but when it grows to maturity and it produces fruit you can tell by the flower and the fruit and the leaves what that is that's how life works. You can tell the character of a person more by what they do than by what they say. How many, how many different quotes can you think of along that line? Actions speak louder than words. And if you are a truly righteous person, you're thinking of a Reliant K-Song from the early 2000s. So how does, this, how does all this point us to Christ and to the gospel? We recognize that all of the Scripture is one story from beginning to end, and Christ is the center of all of it. So what about this? These tribes on the wrong side of the Jordan, what does this have to do with Jesus? And, and we could take some application from some of the typology that, that I mentioned earlier. I think it's simpler than that. Jesus lived on earth as a man just like us. He was tempted in every way, just as we are. He was pulled in every direction by the influence of the world, the flesh, and the devil, just as we are. Yet He was without sin. He was without any sin. No sin in word, in thought, in motive or deed. He alone was the perfect embodiment of all that the Scripture demands of us. What He did, what He said, Always matched. Jesus was wrongly judged by people jumping to faulty conclusions who, because of hardened hearts, were unwilling to listen and have honest conversations. They didn't have ears to hear the truth, nor would they believe the evidence of His actions. They weren't willing. And they made faulty conclusions. They held themselves as righteous, but their hearts were far from God. The proof of the difference between their hearts and His was the difference in their actions. Truth is in the doing. Had their hearts been inclined toward God, they would have received God's Son. Sin is never hidden from God. Therefore, in the end, as always, they had to stand before the Holy God and give account for what He already knew about their dark hearts. And you and I are in the same boat today. If the Lord has broken and humbled our hearts to receive Him by faith, it will be evident by the fruit of God's character being increasingly produced in our lives. We cannot justify ourselves before God by our actions. But when we stop seeing ourselves as okay, stop trying to impress God, other people, or even ourselves, it will show up in our attitudes and in our actions. The way we do business. The way we treat other people, especially people who can't gain us anything. The way we behave when no one's looking or we think no one's looking. The things that are important to us. Things we prioritize. How committed we are to the family of God. How our words and our actions line up. We will begin to look and act more and more like the one who has purchased us and given us new life. Only God knows the heart. But character is recognized by its actions. If you have not come to jesus christ by faith just recognizing the ugliness of your own soul and realizing that he is the only answer the only hope then this might not make a lot of sense to you in fact if you haven't then even me saying coming and recognizing the ugliness of your soul might be offensive to you I'm not like that. If that's what you're thinking right now, let me say something more offensive. You don't know God. We cannot come to Him thinking we have anything to offer Him or that we deserve even to have an audience with Him. If you think He even has to listen to your prayers, then you don't know what a holy God is. When we encounter God as He is, we are on our faces before Him like Isaiah saying, Woe to me, I am ruined because I am unclean and I'm from an unclean people. But when we come to that conclusion, face down before Him, with the true fear of God, not, not the holy reverence they tell you about in Sunday school, but petrified of the God of the universe standing in judgment of me, then we're ready to start. Then we can come to the God that our wicked heart fears and cry out for mercy, and that God then says, I'm going to make you mine. Because no one who seeks refuge in Him gets turned away. But you can't come upright and proud. You've got to come on your face. And once He says, you are mine, there is no longer any wrath left for you because it all fell on Jesus. And when we come to that place where we can take hold of that and put our trust in Him, our hope in Him, Not offering anything else. Not Jesus plus. Not cleaning up my act first and then coming to Jesus. None of that. That's garbage. It's an offense to God. But when I come to Him humbly like that, it changes me. I die. And I become reborn in His resurrection life. With the Holy Spirit of God now taking up residence in me as a believer so that his fruit is produced in my life. Well, how can I know? How can I have assurance of that? Because you begin to desire to be more like Jesus, to be more loving, more selfless, more pure. And will you still sin? Darn right you will. Will you still struggle? Absolutely. But your sin now breaks your heart. And you can never again say, well, it's just a little white lie, or it's just a little sin, and, you know, God knows I'm doing my best. Instead, you're like Isaiah, or you're like Job sitting on the dung heap scraping his boils, and you're like, I have no dignity left. I have no pride left. All I have is Jesus. And it's the best place you could ever be. As we, before we pray here, I just want to point out that's. That's what we're going to see tonight at our baptism service. Not people scraping boils on a dung heap. That's that, not that. I didn't mean to go that direction. But what you're going to see is a group of people who have decided to follow Jesus no turning back. And they have said in their hearts to the Lord, "Lord, you can take the whole world, Just give me Jesus. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world offers. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord than to reign over this earth and miss out on this. I want you. And I'm all in for Him. No, I'm not perfect. I stink like everybody else. But I'm His. I've been adopted and born again. And I died with Him. And so when they go out into the water, the reason believers' baptism is what it is, the reason the immersion matters, it's not because it does some magical thing and all of a sudden they're saved because they got wet. It's a picture of what has already taken place in the heart. That they've received Him by faith and been united with Christ, died with Christ, buried with Christ, and raised up with Him In a new kind of life, born from above. So that picture of going under the water shows that burial, that baptism. When they come back up out, it's a picture of being raised to walk in a newness of life. And they're saying publicly, This is who I am. I'm no longer a white Christian, a black Christian. A uh, straight Christian, gay Christian, you hear this all the time, there's no such thing. I am a Christian. I'm not an American Christian. I'm a Christian. I'm all in with Jesus, which means every other identity I throw aside, I cast it off, it's not me. It doesn't matter how I might tend to struggle with sin, it's not my sin anymore. Jesus took it. And I want you to know it. And I'm identifying with His body, the church. And I'm asking you as my family, the church, to walk with me, to help me grow, to hold me accountable when I get sideways, and to keep me in the Word. And I'm trusting you to love me. And I'm going to love you. With that, I want to invite everybody who can possibly come to come and support these who are going to be immersed in the waters to show that they have died and been raised to new life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, I want to ask You to do what only You can do. I, I recognize that my words and Even my best effort is insufficient to convey the truth of what you have here fully. But nothing, nothing can thwart your plans. Nothing can hold back the move of your Holy Spirit. So Lord, I pray that by His action, by the movement of your Holy Spirit in hearts, that we would be changed. Bring us revival, Lord. Start with me. Burn away everything that seems so important but isn't of You. Redeem every part of our lives that every morning when we wake up, we might be living on mission. When we go to work, we might go to work for Your glory. When we take care of our families, we might do it for Your glory. That those who don't know you might see the way we live, to see our light shine as we shine Jesus' light. And that they would not think of us as good, but that they would give glory to our Father in heaven. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.